0: This is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and I'd like to welcome you all to this month's podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ben Lebwall, who is the director of clinical research at the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University. Ben, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, you wrote a very interesting article that we published in the Red Journal, and it's entitled, Detection of Gluten in gluten-free labeled restaurant food analysis of crowdsourced data and when i read this article i was really fascinated not only by the results which we'll get into but also by the methods really interesting use of a new technology and you know we'll hear more about it in a moment but the whole idea behind this is we know how difficult it is for our patients with celiac disease to stay on a gluten-free diet. It's hard enough as is for them to follow, you know, advice of uh, dietitians, nutritionists or doctors, but it gets even harder if so-called gluten-free foods really are not gluten-free. So tell us a little bit about what you did here and, you know, and why you did this study.
1: Sure, Uh, the rationale for this study was that uh, many patients with celiac disease, when talking about how they navigate the gluten-free diet, find that eating out and traveling are particular challenges. It's one thing when uh, you're cooking your own food, when you have control over, you know, what goes into what you're putting in your mouth. But when you're buying uh, food, when you're on the road or when you're socializing, that tends to be the setting the patients find most hazardous. And even though symptoms can be a somewhat unreliable uh, guide to whether someone's been glutened, so to speak, it's very common for our patients to say, that they strongly suspect that they got exposed to gluten after eating in a restaurant. So that's the most common setting that, that patients will describe uh, when I ask them, when's the last time you think you were exposed to gluten? It's almost always that kind of setting, eating out at a restaurant. So there are studies of packaged food Contents and packaged food that's labeled gluten free by and large is safe. There are always exceptions being documented, but when packaged food says gluten free, the FDA has guidelines that says that needs to contain fewer than 20 parts per million of gluten. And in general, when groups have tested packaged food, indeed, the great majority of such food labeled gluten free truly is gluten free. But no one has done a comprehensive test of restaurant food, and we suspected based on what patients are telling us and And also, based on the potential for cross-contact in restaurant kitchens, that restaurant food, even labeled gluten-free restaurant food, wouldn't be as safe as packaged food.
0: So, of course, we would hope that restaurant food that's labeled gluten-free truly is gluten-free. But buyer beware, you know, it may not be. So you guys did a very interesting study where you used a novel sensor. It's called the, I believe, the NEMA sensor, which is a commercially available gluten detection device, to um, uh, crowdsource people who are using this sensor across the country who were willing and able to share their data through a smartphone, and you sort of put it all together and looked at what they were detecting. So tell us a little bit about the sensor that they used, uh, and then we'll, then we'll get into the you know, details of what you found.
1: Sure. Yeah, and I I would say, Brennan, that really we took advantage of two new technologies. One is this portable gluten sensor, and second is the notion of crowdsourcing. These are both truly new phenomena, and we sort of capitalized on the fact that they're both happening at the same time, and we're able to synthesize something out of that. So this uh, device, it's called the NEMA sensor. It's marketed uh, to the public, and it's available for purchase online directly uh, from the company. It's been around a couple years now and it is a a so-called lateral flow device. It uses these uh, proprietary antibody-based single-use capsules that the user mashes up a small sample of suspect food into the size of a pea, puts it in the single-use capsule, and then puts it in this device. The device is portable, it fits in your pocket, and you can put it on the, the restaurant table. And then, after two to three minutes, the device returns a result either a gluten-found result or a smiley face, which indicates gluten-free. Now, this uh, device is far from perfect in terms of its sensitivity and specificity, and hopefully we'll we'll get into that in a bit, but that's basically the short version of what this device does. Now, the optimal use case for the device in terms of, you know, how does it make patients better off, what kinds of foods should people be testing in terms of what scenarios, etc., that hasn't really been established. This is not an FDA approved medical device. We use the word device sort of informally. Some people call it more like a gadget, but this really falls in a regulatory no man's land between medical devices and, you know, like our phones. It tests food uh, and so it's not technically under the uh, purview of FDA and that it doesn't diagnose a disease or
0: condition. So that's, yeah. that's
1: what it is um, and people are using it and we thought we would take advantage of all the data that's being collected.
0: Right. and there's a number of devices that fall in this kind of gray zone. I mean, just think about a Fitbit, for example, which is clearly designed for health and wellness, but is increasingly being used, you know, by our group and others for health you know, healthcare applications for sort of uh, physician-grade usage. Um, and there are many other examples like that. I mean, there are sensors that can detect the amount of pollution in the air that, you know, asthmatics uh, sometimes use but is not FDA-cleared. So this is not a new idea of testing a non-FDA-cleared consumer-facing device, but we just have to be aware that it hasn't gone through sort of the rigorous regulatory oversight that, you know, other devices might have. So I do want to take a second, though, to beat ahead to that discussion about accuracy. Because it, it probably has some implications or may have implications to the findings. So tell us about, you know, the sensitivity specificity, and specificity and where it maybe it can go off the rails a little bit and and then we'll get into the results themselves.
1: Sure, and I should say, you know, to their credit, the makers of this device have have actually published in the peer-reviewed liter- literature a couple of studies, one by uh, done by themselves, and one sort of outsourced to a third party that they contracted with uh, to do actual testing. So this device clearly does detect gluten. We're not dealing with a magic eight ball. The technology is sound in that gluten-containing food is detected, but there are clear problems. One is that this device does not detect certain forms of gluten. So fermented gluten, or if you ever see barley malt, for example, as an ingredient which is clearly gluten, this device cannot detect gluten in that form. So that is sort of an automatic hit on its sensitivity. The bigger issue for, uh, I would say, the practical application of this device is its specificity. If you're testing this on pure gluten-free ingredients, um, it will accurately report that these. Foods are gluten free, upwards of 90 95% specificity. But when evaluators actually intentionally spiked food with gluten, but very, very low doses of gluten less than 20 parts per million so technically gluten free, but you know, 10 parts per million this device about half the time would detect gluten between 10 and 19 parts per million. So you might say that it's too sensitive at a cost mm-hmm. of specificity. Uh, the device does not give you a number, doesn't tell you how many parts per million it is estimating. It is a binary result or read. And so it's possible that while this device accurately is detecting gluten, it may be detecting clinically insignificant amounts of gluten in certain circumstances. And for the user who doesn't know whether gluten found is 15 parts per million, which is likely safe for the great majority of people with celiac disease, or 100 parts per million, which would be hazardous, there they have to use the judgment. Of course, the alternative before this device existed involved really, you know, looking the weight staff in the eye and trying to discern what their best practices are.
0: The eyeball staff, literally. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you could say that, you know, while this is clearly flawed in, in terms of the limitations I just described, the alternative isn't so great either. And so some, some users are finding this uh, as a useful sort of adjunct or another tool in their toolbox.
0: Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense to have an objective measurement. And it sounds like it. You know, it, it's triangulating on the truth. If it's not, you know, exactly on on uh, on the number, but you know, it's it's a starting point. So, uh, okay. So you guys use this device, um, and you know, there's some potential issues, like maybe it's detecting very low. Parts per million of unclear clinical significance. Uh, I know in my mind as I'm listening to this, I'm also thinking, well, parts per million is different from milligrams. And as I recall um, from your article, it's about 50 milligrams per day is all it takes to potentially cause small bowel damage. So maybe just could briefly mention what is how do we kind of convert these part per million, you know, readings to you know to milligrams. I guess it has to do with the sure. volume of food that you're eating,
1: right? Yeah. So the reason twenty parts per million was settled upon as a consensus definition of gluten free is that you would have to be eating implausibly large amounts of any given food item for something that had, for example, twenty parts per million of gluten to translate into 50 milligrams of uh, gluten it would be it. you know multiple kilos of any given serving so for that reason 20 parts per million was chosen as a concentration cutoff but really it is about content one could argue everyone is exposed to some degree of gluten but how much does it take to cause intestinal damage And again, while there's variability, 50 milligrams seems to be the kind that, the amount that most commonly will cause consistently intestinal damage. Much less is known about how much it takes to cause symptoms, and it's possible that even less amounts of gluten exposure might make people sick. Of course, when people report feeling sick after eating in a restaurant, there are multiple reasons why they they might have felt sick. It's not always gluten. So that's a much harder thing to tease apart.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I like that we're getting into the details on this test, although it may seem a little bit in the weeds. But for our listeners, you know, many of whom are GI doctors, it's just a matter of time before they start hearing about this device. And I think it's worthwhile to learn a little bit about it so that you are more all kind of and you know, knowledgeable about this test and whether or not we should be using it. So let's move ahead now. So setting aside the details of the test itself, what are the main findings from this study?
1: Sure, and I would just to sort of dovetail on our discussion of the accuracy. So for an individual food item that's tested, you know, there's always uncertainty about specificity, et cetera. But when studying groups of foods in the aggregate, then I think you see more of a signal coming out of this right. noise. So there I think there, there is value. So what we did is we took advantage of the fact that many users of this device share their results in the cloud. There's a smartphone app that uh, one can pair the device with, and users – after each test can choose to upload uh, their results, they report what they tested, where they tested it, and what the result was. And so we analyze that crowdsourced data. So over uh, the course of the study period, we analyzed more than 5,500 tests uploaded by a little more than 800 users. And the first question we asked was, what proportion of foods had gluten in them? And there we looked at all foods that were tested, and then those foods that were explicitly labeled gluten-free. And of course, the majority of foods that were tested were labeled gluten-free, hence the concern that's why someone would be testing for gluten in them. So... We found 32% of all of these gluten-free labeled foods had detectable gluten in them. But what I thought was more interesting were differences, differences both in terms of the timing of the testing, uh, in other words, of what kind of meal, but also what kind of food was tested. So we found that dinner time was a risk factor for gluten detection. As compared to lunch and breakfast time, foods tested during dinner were more likely to have gluten detected in them. And then we found that certain foods were far more likely to have gluten detected in them than others. And the two biggest offenders were pizza and pasta. For both of those, more than 50% of all tested foods had gluten detected in them. Those were the major findings. There were a couple other things we were interested just take in. Just like a
0: quick side, yeah. pizza and pasta, but these are gluten-free pizza and pasta, right? They're, they're That's average. right. Is gluten free. That's the whole point. In case anyone's losing track of this discussion, you know, it's, not, it's obvious that pizza and pasta would have uh, gluten in it, but gluten free pizza and pasta is still an awful lot of gluten that you're finding in this so called gluten free pizza and pasta. That's
1: right. And so it clearly is urged for concern. Um, you know, we, we want to be careful and not alarm our patients. I mean, people need to live their lives and, and do their best to navigate this diet. This does not necessarily mean that. More than 50% of all gluten-free pizza or all gluten-free pasta is unsafe. It means that gluten was found in more than 50% of those pizza and pasta that were tested, which was far more than gluten-free burgers, including the buns, gluten-free uh, French fries, etc. So there clearly is something going on. The absolute magnitude is unclear. And what we're taking away from this is the need for us to better sort of open up that black box and understand what is it about those specific foods that make them prone to gluten getting in. There And also, how serious a problem is this, really? Is there a real hazard to eating these foods in terms of having more than 20 parts per million, having a realistic content of gluten that would cause intestinal damage? We're not there yet, but clearly we're seeing a signal, and what it tells us is that when we want to further quantify and better understand contamination of restaurant food, we should be honing in on pizza and pasta.
0: Right. Well, to me, it's a pretty shocking finding. Uh, I'm not sure if you're shocked by it, but pretty shocked to me to see such a high prevalence of gluten in so-called gluten-free foods. Now, obviously, there's some potential limitations, and one of them you point out in the discussion section, which is, well, you know, why were these people testing that particular food? This wasn't some kind of organized, systematic, you know, prospective trial. These were people ecologically kind of out in the wild testing food. So, you know, why were they testing that food in the first place? There might have been something about it that they suspected it was important to test or maybe the eyeball test with the, uh, the weight staff didn't work out and they wanted to confirm themselves. Um, can you just comment on, you know, what some of the limitations might be uh, of, of the study itself?
1: Sure, uh, you know, we spent some time talking about the potential limitations of the device, but there are also potential limitations of the study design in terms of relying on crowdsourced data. We're sort of trading in quality for quantity in the sense that it's impossible to do a nationwide test of restaurants or evaluation of restaurants to this magnitude without having to take some sort of hit on the granularity of the details we're looking at. We're taking advantage of the fact that we have more than 800 users uploading information, but these are not trained food inspectors. These are people who are choosing to use this device any way they see fit and are also choosing to share the results uh, that they think uh, is worth sharing. So people are only going to be testing foods that they are suspicious of. If someone were really sure in terms of gluten content of a specific food, they likely would uh, not bother to test using this device. Not only that, people are probably more likely to share results that they find concerning or shocking than a relatively boring result. So these are all the caveats we need to include when talking about a crowdsourced type of study. This is a significant form of selection bias that makes us not want to necessarily take the absolute proportions as face value. It is a sample and it's likely skewed at the same time. If bias were the overriding problem, we probably wouldn't be seeing differences in food types, and yet we're seeing such strong differences between pizza and pasta and these other foods that clearly there's a signal there. So, as with any kind of crowdsourced analysis, we have to take into account um, the fact that people are choosing to report what they want to report, and this is not a randomized trial, nor is it a systematic food inspection trial. At the same time, it's pointing us in the direction of what we need to be concerned about. And related to that, when I've told patients about these findings, when I tell them about pizza and pasta, I get this look from patients, which was you needed to do a study to know that. Of course, this is our day-to-day life. We know all of the potential hazards in terms of preparation of these foods. And there it gets kind of interesting because we're not sure why pizza and pasta would more likely be subject to cross contact with gluten, but there are plausible hypotheses. baking in an oven that's right next to a gluten-containing pizza, you can imagine aerosolized flour getting uh, moving from one Mm -hmm. to the other. And with pasta, a common misstep that kitchen staff will often commit would be to use the same pot of boiling water for the gluten-free pasta, even though it had just been used to boil gluten-containing pasta. And there's potential for cross-contact there too. That's not to say that that's the mechanism in all these cases, but I think those are both plausible mechanisms. And patients, in terms of when they are relying on their perception of food safety and their own symptoms that they get after eating out, they believe that these findings are very much congruent with their lived experience.
0: So it's one of those studies that is maybe fascinating to us but obvious to those who live with celiac day in and day out. And, in fact, sometimes those are the most important studies because it raises awareness among providers about something that patients already know. And if nothing else, it's bringing us closer to their everyday lives and allowing us to empathize maybe a bit more with the challenges that they face when selecting a diet, which is, uh, you know, easy enough to prescribe and to talk about, you know, in a textbook or on rounds but something altogether different when a patient experiencing celiac has to you know, make these tough decisions. And now it's compounded by the, the cross-contamination that you're talking about. So you know, I think this is a very important study. That's why we published it. I want to congratulate you on the study, not just for the importance of the results, but also the methodology. And we talked about it already. But this, in many ways, is a digital health study. It's a device study. You know, It's an epidemiologic study. It's almost a social science study. We didn't get into some of the details about regional variations, for example. And I encourage our listeners to read the, the, uh, the full paper to learn more about the device and about the findings. And I want to thank you, Ben, for being with us on the podcast today and for publishing this really interesting paper. Thanks again.
1: Well, thank you, Brennan, particularly for the opportunity to uh, share these findings with the GI community and with the public.
0: Well, thanks again. And on behalf of my co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Brian Lacey, again, this is Brennan Spiegel of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us and look forward to talking to you on the next podcast.